Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Corey Souza's here with me. Hello, Corey. Hello, Nick. Great to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. We are in the lovely office of Chris McCarthy, who you may know from our EMT programs. It's a beautiful day today, and today we're going to be talking about Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. So, Corey, before we get into the book, do you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about your background and kind of how you got interested in EMS and what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so EMS is a uh, second career or even third career, depending on how uh, precise you want to be with it. Um, I'm a former military officer. Um, I did a number of years uh, in an airborne unit in the Army, and uh, I got out and was pursuing a career in outdoor education. And uh, I took a wilderness first aid course and kind of got sidetracked from there, got pretty enamored and with uh, with the world of medicine. And, and uh well, that's kind of the wilderness medicine aspect of, has always kind of been an anchor for me. I've definitely, uh, definitely kind of left those aspirations behind and have fully embraced uh, the medicine side of things. So here we are. Yeah, there's definitely uh, more money to be had, at least in this area with conventional EMS. So we have a lot of folks that take a wilderness program like, man, this is really like the cat's pajamas. And they get involved in street medicine and kind of see that world of it. Um, and obviously you're working full time right now as a paramedic, right? Yep. Working full-time as a paramedic. Um, I started out working in a hospital as a ER tech in like a community community access hospital, worked my way up to a tech in a level one trauma center here in the area, um, kind of volunteered for uh, an agency or a number of a number of agencies and then got hired on uh, full-time as a firefighter paramedic here in Vermont. Yeah. And I think you're an interesting case because a lot of this, a lot of the people that we've seen over the last 10 years coming into the career fire service are firefighters who then start doing EMS training and become EMTs and work through that side of it. And if I remember right, you were an EMS person who came to the fire department and then kind of got your technical training through the fire department. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, no, uh, no, no qualms about it. I'm definitely an EMS person, kind of a tech rescue person. First and foremost, the firefighter side of things was more of an experiment, um, but it's working out so far. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and that's, uh, we appreciate you being here on the show too. So, so without getting too depressed, fair disclaimer to our listeners today, we want to talk about this book, Being Mortal. So you may have heard of Atul Gawande with his book, The Checklist Manifesto, which we've referenced in the show before. Um, and then this book, Being Mortal, um, is a little bit more uh, on the periphery of like the psychology and sociology of medicine, which is something that you and I are both super interested in all the time. I know uh, when we were working on the ambulance together, we had a lot of conversations about what medicine is like and what it could be like, depending on, you know, how we conduct ourselves and how we interact with our patients. Do you mind just sharing with the listeners a little bit about like, if you had to explain this book in your elevator pitch of like 30 seconds or less, what might you kind of describe it as? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of that 10,000 foot picture, as you, as you put it, you know, he breaks it kind of down into a couple of, of parts. You know, he first looks at the concept of aging as it applies to, you know, a lot of first world nations today, uh, you know, how it's changed, you know, during the course of the, you know, 20th century, you know, how we've, you know, essentially doubled our life expectancy from the start of the 19th century, or excuse me, the 20th century, you know, to the end of it, um, the number of ways in which that has happened, and, you know, how, how people kind of spend, you know, spend their final years and how it, and how it looks different. Um, he kind of talks about the medical side of it and how it's been medicalized and, and how, you know, just how it's gone from kind of being a, a personal and a, you know, and a, and a social aspect to really kind of a, objective focused, um, you know, you know, as, as providers, we kind of just jump into things and we, and we, and we don't give a whole lot of thought about, you know, 
necessarily what the, what the patient's wishes always are. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so that kind of leads, leads people to, you know, a scenario where they have all these options at extending their life, but what does it do for their quality of life? Um, and then he, he talks about how, how he, you know, he's a, he's a doctor, he's a surgeon for uh, Brigham and women's, uh, hospital in Boston. Um, so he kind of gives his own, his own take on that and how, uh, and how things have evolved from kind of being a, like as a physician paternalistic to, you know, more informative and how it's kind of morphing into like an interpretive, uh, in, interpretive, uh, method of being a doctor, you know, where you're not just, you're not just making decisions for them and you're not, and you're not, uh, or you're not, you know, just purely informing them, you know, and now, and now to kind of best serve patients needs, you're, you're now kind of helping them weigh their options. And then finally he follows it up with a, uh, with a personal experience of his, of his father kind of going through a terminal, a terminal situation and, and how that kind of has shaped his, shaped his focus going forward. Yeah. I think one of the things that was a little bit uncomfortable to read in the beginning of the book is basically the thesis of the first half of the book is you are going to die. And you are going to die by a series of small failures of your body. You're going to be, he talks about like your sweat glands clogging up. He talks about you losing your eyesight, losing your hearing, and that these are all expected, anticipated, and predictable outcomes that every human being will go through. And like you said, some of the modern medicine pieces of it are, you know, doctors think that their job is to avoid those problems or mask those problems or get rid of those problems. And I think uh, one of the ways he kind of flips the script a little bit is we know that those things are happening. And just because they're happening doesn't mean that your life is over and you can't have any enjoyable, meaningful, purposeful experience at the end of your life or in the back half of your life. Um, and I thought that it was really interesting how he, you know, like you had mentioned, he's talking about these patients getting these problems and rather than just masking them with prescription medications, maybe doing really simple things like examining their feet during their primary care visits to make sure that they're not at risk for falls is going to be more advantageous than giving them three more medicines to mask their back pain, you know, or maybe we in, we have them go for walks, daily walks, which might alleviate some of that pain compared to just prescribing more and more medicines to mask these symptoms and eventually just dump them in a nursing home, which is something he talks a lot about in this book is the concept of a nursing home and kind of where that may, if it does fall in people's lives. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's really what I ate up about this book is that, you know, I mean, you know, the, the end of life is kind of where he's choosing to focus it, but it, it happens, you know, all throughout medicine, you know, um, you know, from ICU care to emergency medicine, you know, to geriatrics, so, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, we've got 13 organ systems and, you know, medicine has identified 50,000 different ways that they can, you know, struggle, you know, and or ultimately fail, you know, and so we've just, you know, we've just become managers of symptoms and, you know, it's led us to, you know, not really asking the right questions. It's just, you know, oh, hey, there's a procedure for that or, hey, there's a pill for that, you know, instead of, you know, what, you know, what are your, are your ultimate goals with this, right? And, you know, because we've extended our life expectancy, you know, as, as a species, we've really become insulated from our, you know, from having to grapple with more, with mortality. And so, you know, we're so, you know, not used to having to think about that until maybe the last five years of a 70, 80 year lifespan that when we do have to, you know, finally face that, you know, we're unsure of, of how to do it or what our priorities should be. So, you know, he, he really kind of, you know, tilts the, tilts the prism and tilts the lens into, you know, how, do we as providers, you know, help people identify what their priorities are and, and ultimately serve them as, as, uh, 
as, as medical providers. So. Yeah, I think one of the things you and I have always kind of shared perspective on is this concept of like refusals. And I know we've worked on fire departments and agencies where the like there are folks that work there that believe that the ambulance brings people to the hospital. When you dial a 911, you put them in the ambulance and they go to the hospital. We're not there to interpret any other piece of it. It's just that's the service we provide. We get there, someone goes to the hospital, and that's that's the call. That's it. And one of the things you and I have always been really big on is, you know, do they need to go to the hospital by ambulance right now? Do we need to load this 87-year-old, you know, osteoporosis-ridden, painful, you know, procedure-inducing trip to the hospital for something as simple as, like, they fell and hurt their wrist? Or is this something where we can make sure that they that they have informed consent, that they understand the risks of not going, that they know what resources they have. Maybe a neighbor can come by and sit with them for a while or, you know, uh, someone else can check up on them tomorrow, but not just having this like very narrow idea of what EMS is, maybe like take a second to have a conversation with them and see what their like goals are for their medical care. And maybe they don't want to spend the next 48 hours in the hospital waiting for a doctor to see them because the doctor's, you know, on a different floor overwhelmed with other patients. Maybe we can just hear what it is that their problem is and we can help them with that right here, you know? Oh, totally. And I mean, you know, you and I are both in the place in our career where, you know, and, and those of you listening, if you're not there yet, you will be, um, you know, it's not all acute situations in EMS. You know, there's loads of, you know, stable or, you know, subacute, uh, you know, patient populations that you're going to deal with. And even a lot of the acute patients are going to be products of, you know, mismanaged or undermanaged, you know, um, you know, disease processes, you know, so, you know, it depends on all, it, it depends on how much time you have, but, you know, we can always be asking ourselves, you know, questions of how can we treat this patient better? How, you know, what can we do for them? You know, uh, you know, our, our repeat patients, you know, our, our frequent flyers, you know, like what can we, what can we be doing instead of just, you know, feeding them through the system that's, you know, that's clearly not, you know, working for them. It's, you know, it's underpersonalized and, you know, and it's, and it's under benefiting them and it's, you know, it's taxing, you know, patients and providers alike. So. Yeah. One of the things he mentions as a specific is this uh, concept of like a hip fracture in the elderly and how it can basically be a death sentence for a lot of individuals who either never walk again or never make it out of the nursing home or the hospital because they just aren't able to recover from an injury like that. And when he was talking about uh, the prevention of falls, which is a huge, su super high risk for these hip fractures in elderly folks, is um, anybody that has more than four prescription medicines, has uh, muscle weakness and balance problems, is almost at 100% risk of fall. It's really like a question of when, not a question of if. And these are some things where like we as EMS, you might be there for like toe pain or for a bellyache or for a headache. But if you see a patient who's on, you know, five narcotic medicines for various ailments, they can't stand up without assistance and they can't bear weight very well without, you know, two firefighters on either side of them. That's something that we can refer to the healthcare team to try to avoid these people, you know, falling down and breaking their hip because at that point it's, it's kind of too late in terms of preventing injury and, you know, preserving this quality of life. So trying to just remind providers that don't just go in there with this narrow focus of like, what's your complaint today? What, what is bothering you at this moment? And let's fix that one thing. Like, look at these patients globally and think about what's going to be the biggest impact to their total quality of life for the future, not just for like this 10 minute period that we see them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we are very much in the business of determining and, and, and solving a chief complaint, but you know, it's, it's taught to us at all levels to treat the underlying cause, you know, um, you know, and I mean, you can, you know, you can do the bare minimum and, you know, 
you know, give a, you know, chief complaint and a set of vitals at patient handoff, or you can be like, Hey, you know, here's what I noticed on scene. You know, you know, we are given a unique position as EMS providers of uh, being allowed into patients' homes and their living circumstances. They're, you know, much more intimately than, than in hospital providers do. Right. So, you know, we can just, you know, you know, ship them and, and dump them in a hospital gurney, or we can say, Hey, you know, this, pra- this patient really needs a social work consult or, Hey, this person, you know, would probably benefit from this service or, you know, or this or that, you know, so there's definitely things that we can do to, to help, help turn the tide. Yeah. I think one of the things that I used to do with a lot of my really chronically ill patients that would um, rub some of our more old school people the wrong way is having a conversation about their advanced directives when we're going to the hospital on a non-emergent complaint. Because if I see somebody that has like congestive heart failure, COPD, you know, they have uh, three previous strokes, two previous MIs, they can't breathe, they can't walk, they have a lot of other concurrent medical problems. When I'm driving them to the hospital for, you know, the leg infection, if there's somebody that's at risk for a sudden cardiac arrest, or they're in that window where, you know, something serious could happen to them, and they have this like, projected serious medical outcome, having that conversation, but like, Hey, if you were to go into cardiac arrest, would you want someone to perform CPR on you? Would you want to stay in the ICU? Would you want a breathing tube? And if they're like, absolutely not. And you say, Oh, do you have a advanced directive paperwork that says that that's not what you want? And they go, no, I haven't gotten around to it. That's stuff that we can continue to reiterate because it avoids us from uh, having these situations where now we're, we're forced to do all those things under informed consent. When we know that 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 patient uh, doesn't want that done to them, or if the family members are don't have power of attorney and they're like, please, you know, we don't want you to do this. This is not what he wants. And it's like, do you have any legal documentation for this? Because I don't want to go to any more cardiac arrests when we're doing things that the patient doesn't want, that the family doesn't want us to do, but they have not completed paperwork to have advanced directives or medical power of attorney, because it puts us in this really challenging spot that leaves a dissatisfaction in everybody. So having these conversations ahead of time, you know, I've had, you know, lieutenants and captains and chiefs and stuff always be like, you can't talk about that, man. Like that's, they don't want to hear that. And it's like, but they do want to hear that. They, they need to hear that. That's part of our job as medical providers is like being transparent about what the possibilities are and listening to them. And like you had mentioned earlier, this interpretive care of trying to understand what they want and then trying to help them get what they want rather than just saying, well, if there's no DNR, we're going to do what we do. No, a hundred percent. You're absolutely right. You know, I mean, it, and, and, and almost no fault to, to those guys either, because, you know, if, if doctors and surgeons and, and politicians, you know, have trouble addressing that topic to, you know, as higher level providers and policymakers, you know, then, you know, of course it's going to be tough for, you know, the lay firefighter, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that was interesting he mentioned in his book is when you're a doctor or surgeon, a lot of these new residents, they're never taught that, that doing nothing is an option that like, they think that they have to give you something like, it's just about how aggressive you want to be. Do you want to operate? Do you want to wait and operate? Do you want to uh, give meds then operate? Do you want to operate then give meds? And um, a tool talks about like, what if you don't operate? And everyone's like, whoa, 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 but we're doctors. Like that's what we do. We fix problems. And it's like, but maybe that's not like the primary mission of healthcare is fixing every problem. Maybe the primary mission of healthcare is prolonging the time that you do have in a way that's meaningful and purposeful and like valuable and comfortable for that person that, uh, you know, three months of really comfortable, relaxing time where you die at home with your family, surrounded by the people you love with the opportunity to go see a sunset in India one more time, you know, and, and be comfortable and pain-free might be more beneficial to that 90 year old than having another six months 
months, but spending it all on the ICU with chronic pain and lung collapses and cardiac arrests and all these other things that are really, really going to be challenging. Oh yeah, man. At best. I mean, you know, he, you know, he talks about how at no other time have people, you know, face the end of their life with more depression, more pain and more confusion than at any other time in recorded history. Yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting when he talked about the difference between like a very, uh, technically advanced culture with a lot of revenue in healthcare versus, uh, like a country or an area of the world that's maybe not as advanced where like, say you had a diagnosis of leukemia in a very small third world country, the focus would be on making your end of life comfortable listening to you, figuring out what you want and knowing that you're going to die at home from your leukemia. Whereas here it's like, you know, you go into like absolute war mode where you go to the ICUs and the best cancer centers and you're flying back and forth and you're doing everything. And I think that there's a place for that when it's a curable disease and when, you know, there's something that can be gained from that. But also like, you know, you remember from the beginning of the book, he talks a story about the guy who had the tumor on his spine and it was, you know, he was moving around doing his thing when they found the tumor and then they wanted to operate immediately. And the risk was, you know, we'll get that tumor out, but you might be paralyzed. It's like, that's a bigger conversation than there's whisking him in the operating room and pouring the iodine on his back. Like you might want to think about, would you want to be paralyzed just to get a tumor out and prolong your life another few months? Or do you want to live for a few months and enjoy the time that you have left? Yeah. He really, he really highlights that concept of borrowed time. You know, like, you know, are you, you know, you have this much time, but do you want to double down and maybe live a little bit longer, but at a much lower quality of life? Yeah. That's, that's a hard decision. I think he even mentions in his book that this is something that healthcare providers are really uncomfortable talking about. And I almost think about it in the lens of my job now, when we're moving these patients from these small care centers to these big care centers, I almost wonder like, you know, have they had this conversation with this person about like what this looks like? Like when we load these people in the helicopter or the truck and we're driving hours or flying hours to go somewhere and do something like, you know, sometimes we're flying these patients hours away from their family and they don't have a way to get back. And it's like, is this like, you know what I mean? Like, is this, is this what's going to happen? Is this like for a reason is, you know, and so I think it's interesting to hear the perspectives of different doctors on kind of what their process is for informing the patients. I just had a transfer the other day. And, uh, it was like kind of eye opening for me because we put him in the back of the truck and like halfway to the hospital we're going to, he's like, Hey, uh, if you don't mind, like, um, I like have no idea what's happening. And I was like, Oh, fair enough. I was like, did the, did the doctor talk to you? And he's like, no, I just know I'm going to the big hospital. I was like, okay. And so I pulled out his notes that his doctor had written about him and him and I just sat in the back of the truck and I just read him the notes about the doctor. And he's like, so I'm not sure if I'm going to surgery or if I'm going to be discharged or like how I'm getting home. I don't know what to tell my family. I was like, oh, fair. Okay. Thank you for letting me know. I didn't, I wasn't aware that you weren't in the loop. So let's get you in the loop. Yeah, yeah, and let's I spent, fix this. I spent like 30 minutes just reading him going through his medical record with him, just talking about like what the diagnostics interpretations mean with his x-ray, what his lab results are and whether they're normal or abnormal, what it means when they want a consult for something, what to expect, what he could be going to the ICU. He could be going to the floor. He could be staying in the ED if there are no beds, like just letting him know. And then like 30 minutes later to see him be like, Hey, I feel a lot better. Thank you. Like I was like really concerned that I was going to die because no one told me anything. And now I feel much better. It's like, how do we as a healthcare team, like all of us, not me guilty included, is like, how do we miss that 
that's like a person. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and and I mean, this is a whole other concept. You know, like that. That's just a luxury in some in some moments. I mean, that's a, again, that's a whole other podcast we could probably do. But but it's it's vital. You oh know? yeah. Like like I mean that like you know I think if you sit anyone down in an interview for a healthcare position and you ask them you know why do you do this? Well, they're like, well, of course the patient, you know, yeah. but then sometimes, you know, to use the old adage, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. I mean, yeah. the patient just gets kind of left in the dust sometimes. Yeah. I think, um, like you had mentioned before, this idea of like paternalistic, informative and interpretive, that's definitely something I felt myself shift through in my career. Like when I first came out of EMT class and AEMT class, I remember, my instructors and like preceptors always mean like exude confidence. You're the professional remain the consummate professional. You're calm. You're in command. You know what to do. And like the more I go through my EMS career, the less paternal, like paternalistic I am and the more interpretive I am to the point where like I had a paramedic student with me in my last job on the fire department who almost fell out of their chair because I asked the patient what type of pain meds they wanted. And they were like, you can't do that. You can't ask the patient what type of pain meds they want. I was like, you absolutely can. You can explain what each, it's going in their body. <laughs> yeah, you can explain what each med does. You can tell them about the risks and the advantages and disadvantages. Like we have plenty of patients who hate opiates. They don't like how they feel in opiates. They're scared of them. They're uncomfortable. And so instead of just being like, "Well, this is what our protocol says," I was yeah. like, "Do you want some ketamine? Do you know? Have yeah. you heard of ketamine?" And yeah. you just explain it to them, and they're like, "Oh, I'd like that." And then all of a sudden, fifteen minutes later, they're like, "I feel amazing, yeah. and I don't have any side effect." And it's like. How did we miss that? Like you're a component of this team. Like you're the patient. Like you should have an idea of like what's going in your body, or allowing patients to pick a half dose of something. Like if I'm if the protocol says, oh, give them like 50 micrograms of fentanyl, and if they're like, I'm really uncomfortable about that, I'm really nervous. Like you as a paramedic can absolutely say, well, why don't I give you 25? And in five minutes, let's see how you feel. And I can always add more. It's harder for me to take it away than it is for me to add more. And for those of you listening. Do not give uh, pain medicines and then think you're just going to give Narcan to reduce the effect. That's not a, that's not a good process. Not the preferred practice. No, no, you should be a little bit more calculated than that. Um, but yeah, so like I've, I've kind of like had this transition from this, like you go in the back of the truck and you tell the patient what's happening. You're going to the hospital. We're giving you this medicine to now being like, hey, what are you, what is bothering you and what are you looking to get out of it? Because if the answer is your ankle hurts because you, you sprained it yesterday, going to the ER, sitting there all night long and maybe getting one x-ray that gets sent and referred to your primary care. Like maybe you, like maybe you don't know that like, just cause you have an injury doesn't mean you're going to immediately go into like the operating room at the biggest hospital in the region. Like there might be a little bit more to it than that. And if you're not dying of an acute illness, the ER is designed to triage and treat the most critical patients. So there's no guarantee that going by ambulance is going to get you immediately into that doctor. So like just being transparent with patients about that, I think is really important. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. And, and it's, and it's something that I, already kind of did my practice a little bit, but just even more so after reading this book, you know, I really kind of seized on a lot of the, on the thoughts that he presents. And I really liked a lot of the, the case studies and personal, personal experiences that he recounts in this book. And just, just, I really like his writing style to begin with. I mean, I've, I've read all of his books at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, the checklist manifesto and, and this one are, are definitely the top two. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting. And for those of you that are listening, I encourage you to go get the audiobook or read the paper copy because there's a lot of really cool stories in there that we can't get into in the podcast just based off time, like the Eden experience or the, you know, the uh, socio emotional uh, learning. Um, 
sorry, the socio-emotional selective theory, Karen Wilson, uh, Brown Wilson, like there's a lot of really, really interesting, uh, like sociological developments we've had in healthcare and in how we care for our aging populations, which is really interesting. And uh, I think one of the things I'll give you just a little teaser for is in some cultures, you'll have multiple generations of people that are living in the same house. And a lot of people would say that that's like the most amazing way to take care for the elderly is to have, you know, as your elderly folks get older, they live with their sons and daughters, their sons and daughters take good care of them. And as the sons and daughters get older, their sons and daughters take care of them. And uh, a tool does this uh, review of all this information. And nowadays, in the times that we live in, the both the the daughters and sons of those folks and the folks that are getting older don't want that. They don't want to live in the same house. And it's kind of uh, interesting because you think of like, oh, I feel really bad because I'm not having my mom move in with me. And the overwhelming evidence has shown the reason that they do that is they want to avoid the nursing home. They, it's not that they want to live with you and they want to be in the same house as you necessarily. It's that they want to avoid going to the nursing home. And he's basically saying there are a lot of other options between those two things. And I think we need to spend some time like figuring out how to care for elderly in a way that they want that's pur- purposeful and meaningful and valuable in their most prime years. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I I love that he kind of, you know, highlights those different options and and he, you know, he explores like, all right, maybe let's back up and ask yourself a different question and, you know, maybe seek some different answers, you know, you know, medicine and, you know, and a lot of these nursing homes have gotten so focused on safety, right? Like safety is the big hallmark of the nursing home, right? You know, and then he goes on to make the point of like, well, safety is what you choose for people that you love, but autonomy is what you choose for yourself. Right. And, and it's a double-edged sword because with autonomy comes some responsibility and some acceptance of, of that morality that he, you know, that, that we all have to face at the end. And he, and he does explore that, but you know, like he, he, he made an example of an Alzheimer's patient that was hoarding cookies, you know, at a nursing home because he was only allowed a pureed diet, you know, like let the guy, let the guy eat a cookie, you know, yeah. like, you know, like, you know, let, you know, let them, let them have a, have a drink if they want to have a drink. Right. You know, like it comes with, it comes with some other, other responsibilities. Right. You know, it can't, can't have some ragers at the nursing home, but yeah. you know, I know. And I do think that that's a really important point is he also mentioned something that like totally correlated with my EMS career where he says like your uncooperative, difficult old nursing home patients are probably uncooperative and difficult because that's the only control they have left. And like, if you give them a little bit of control, I almost like as terrible as this is to say, sometimes I think of like a really severely sick, very old person is very similar to like a toddler in terms of how you're communicating with them. Like a toddler is going to respond much better if you say, would you like to wear the blue coat or the red coat compared to put on your coat? They're going to go, no, because they don't want to put on the (laughs) coat. But if you say blue coat or red coat, they're like, Ooh, I get to choose between the coats. (laughs) And I think, you know, patients, like we talked about with the pain medicine, I think giving them that ability to kind of work through their own care plan and be involved in it. Like that guy I was transporting the other day of like, uh, Hey, excuse me, if you don't have a second, uh, I have no idea what's happening. It's like, Oh, let's, let's solve that. That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a big problem. That's an easy fix. Yeah. Um, and the, the last thing I just want to touch on before I wrap up here, um, is this piece he talks about in the beginning of the book, um, that like the ultimate fear of healthcare providers, doctors, anybody in the healthcare field is that they have a problem they can't fix. And dying is basically like the ultimate version of that problem. Like, what do you do if you're an ICU doctor and your patient is going to die? Like, it's really tough for healthcare providers to get their mind around that because they spend all their medical training and all their time trying to prolong life and try to fix problems. And so when you encounter a problem that you can't fix, that's really hard to get your mind around. 
And he says that that's one of the like psychological pieces behind why these doctors are maybe not having the tough conversations is because they're so like mission focused and like they they have such narrow tunnel vision on fixing the problem that's in front of them. Like, oh, okay, we need to get, um, we need to get the sepsis under control. We need to get the sepsis under control. And they give them so heavy antibiotics to the point where like, they're not going to have a normal bowel movement for like three years because they just absolutely just nuclear bomb this person with antibiotics. It's like, yeah, you, you got it. You got that problem. But at what cost? You know, like what what are we looking at here? And I think that was I've definitely felt that in my career of, you know, you go to a cardiac arrest and you're like, oh, like the ultimate fear is not being able to solve a problem. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, I think that is uh, I think that is everyone's worst fear is I've reached the end of my rope. Now, what do I do? Yeah. So, yeah. And I think just having the ability to have that conversation with whoever is the, you know, parties at play, whether it's family members. And, you know, I always like to, in the cardiac arrest, we, we've gone through this like death and dying training with Dr. Um, Claus of the University of Mont Medical Center. And he basically was teaching EMS providers about how to communicate with family members and invested parties during a cardiac arrest event. And one of the interesting things that they've shown with this research is that, the, the people who are present for that event will actually have a, a healthier and more robust recovery period if you involve them in the process. So if you're explaining to them what is happening and uh, there's actually been a lot of studies that have shown like bringing these family members into the room when you're resuscitating the patient. Uh, it's almost like the kid with the monster theory, like reality is so much less scary than what's in their head. And I think like explaining, okay, this is Corey. He's, he put a breathing tube in this patient to make sure that, you know, they're able to get oxygen in and out. The patient's heart is not beating right now. And there's no electrical activity. That's Jeff. He's giving epinephrine, which is a medicine where he's trying to get the electrical activity started. That's Tom. He's pushing on the chest to squeeze blood um, out of the heart and move it around the body to keep the oxygen and tissues um, as well perfused with as much oxygen as we can. Like just being really clear about what it is that you're doing and why has actually um, has actually had a really good outcome. And you would think that this would be like super traumatizing for the family members, but at least in my own anecdotal experience, which I try not to bring in too much. Um, I've actually seen people handle this situation a lot better when you do that than when you go, go in the living room and don't come out. And then you come back out 30 minutes later and everyone's like in a heap weeping mess because they have no idea what's happening. Yeah, no, likewise. And, you know, I, I thought the very same thing and it was very, uh, very formative for me the first couple of times that I got to see that. And, and it actually helped, you know, everyone as providers process it really well as well. Um, but yeah, I really hope that this kind of interpretive focus in medicine and, and an EMS kind of, kind of becomes a, a culture shift and a culture trend as we, as we go forward and wrestle with a lot of the big questions that, uh, EMS doesn't seem to have the answer to right now. And I thought this was a great, uh, a great book for me. And it really, really helped my practice and it really helped uh, change the way I, I think about stuff when I'm interacting with patients and working in the streets. Yeah, absolutely. I think of it as like the transition from a high school teacher to a college professor. So like a high school teacher is going to have a curriculum. They're going to tell you what the curriculum is. They're going to keep everyone in line, send you to detention when you don't do something correctly. And then they're just going to pitch you what they're supposed to pitch you. A college professor has the end goal in mind, but they understand that each student's pathway to get there is going to be different. And they also like if you talk to any college professors, they're fully aware that there are some students that are not going to make it to the end of the rainbow. And, and that's they do okay. not care. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay for students to, to try out new things and not like it. And that's fine. Just like with our medical patients, there are some patients that don't want pain meds. 
And that's okay. We don't need to continue to push these meds on them. Or like, how about Tylenol? Like that's a super simple, low hanging fruit that a lot of people miss. They think, oh, we have fentanyl, we have morphine, we have ketamine, we have all these other medicines. And then like no one ever says like, hey, would you want to just like wait five minutes and get IV Tylenol at the hospital? Or would you want to get a different medicine? And we can talk about that. And and you're not promising something to them. What you're doing is you're you're offering them the ability to make their own decisions. So if you get to the hospital and you say, hey, they really would prefer Tylenol. We don't carry that here. Um, and they weren't interested in narcotics. That provider still has the ability to give narcotics, but they can also say either, yes, let's give you some Tylenol or no. And here's why. And it's just that, that new pathway to letting the patient like interpret what's happening to them, you know, and you're like the librarian, you're like taking all the resources and helping people find them. Um, but you can't just, you can't be paternalistic and just tell them what to do all the time. Cause it's not going to go well. And you can't be informative where you just read off things like a, like a web MD search, because we've all had patients who do that. And that's not very helpful, is it? No. So you got to be <laughs> able to take in the information and then distribute it to the patient so that they can make their own decision. And for those of you out there, it's okay to include your patients in the decision-making process. I know it feels weird. And the first few times you do it, it'll probably feel weird, but you'll actually have a better connection with your patients and they'll feel better about you if you do that than if you just say, I have fentanyl, do you want fentanyl? That's a very narrow way to look at how to treat your patient. It's much better to say, hey, here are the options I have. Here's what they do. Here's what they do that's bad. And this is what you're currently at. Like, what do you want? And if they say, no, I don't want pain meds, you can still check in with them and say, hey, if you do want pain meds later, just let me know. Like that opportunity doesn't close just because I asked you once, right? So um, just making sure we're paying attention to our patients and what they need is, is really key. So thanks, Corey. Appreciate you being here. Um, I think we should probably set something up later to go over the checklist manifesto. I think we're kind of at our time here, but I'd love to jump into that book too. Sounds good. Sounds good. Like I said, I can't recommend uh, that book enough as well. So if you're listening to this one uh, and you want to know what we're talking about the next time, crack that open. Um, it is really awesome. It uh, it helped me helped me be a better leader as well as be a better provider. And uh, yeah, I think we've got a lot of uh, awesome things to talk about in the future, Nick. Got a lot of uh, exciting things coming up for the both of us. So I think uh, I think there'll be more. Absolutely. Yeah. And and these are all audiobooks too. So you guys can pause that Nicki Minaj for a minute, listen to a little bit of the audiobook. Like you could still learn. It's okay. Those commutes can be valuable. So, well, thanks, Corey. I really appreciate it. And for those of you listening, we will see you next month for a totally new topic and continuing on your EMS journey. Thank you. Thank you, Nick.